Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about battling invisible risk. Why do I just have this image of like Wonder Woman with the bracelets? (laughs) Well, she's got an invisible plane. (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) So uh, this one starts off on a somber note. Uh, I'm sure everyone has heard in the news about the building collapse in Miami. And Rochelle and I both had a similar part of the story pop out at us. And it was the engineering consultant who knew that things were wrong. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, I was really drawn into the story because of the human tragedy and the scale of it. But I couldn't ignore this idea of this consultant, this consulting engineer who had made a report. Sounds like he predicted some level of this. But the other part that struck me is how this was such a huge risk a hidden risk, an invisible risk for this engineer, as he's putting that report together, could he have known that three years later, something this tragic would happen? Was he prepared Mm. for, and and his firm, I'm not sure if he was a solo, is a soloist or is part of a bigger firm. Are they prepared now for certainly the emotional reaction of thinking about whether they had some kind of a role or Mm. could have had a role in preventing it? But also from the business standpoint of that engineer, how is he going to spend the next few years of his professional life? Probably embroiled in uh, liability cases, in depositions, even if everything he did was exactly right. Right. Which seems like it was, you know. On the surface, that's what it looks like. So far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, time will show us. Right. And so for software folks, you know, we're not dealing with the same sorts of things as a mechanical engineer in terms of, in terms of risk. Uh, but everyone's familiar with the term technical debt and where, where do our responsibilities lie or like, where are the boundaries when you come across a monolithic old system that has loads of technical debt and is just bound to fail? I mean, the, the consequences are so much lower of course, but, you know, software, at least in software, in my space, there's no like licensed licensure. Is that the right word? Licensing Mm -hmm. for software developers. There's no board. There's no AMA, like in the medical profession, there's no bar. So what, what can you do or what should you do? What's the right thing to do when you're engaged in client projects where there are, you know, there are risks, of course, you know, project failure can certainly cost lots of money. And what are your responsibilities and what can you do to kind of mitigate that risk, or at least make it visible to whoever is shouldering it and make it clear whose responsibility is what and who's taking the risk. So if it, if you don't want to be taking the risk, then, you know, don't f- figure out a way not to, whether that means not engaging with the client or or whatever the case may be. But anyway, this story was so huge uh, and it, and the consultant angle, you know, definitely raised a red flag with both of us. Yeah. And in, as we were talking before we hit record, Jonathan had said, well, you know, how bad can things go? And I think that's really a strategic question to ask yourself when you set up your business first, but with each client engagement, 
how bad can things go? So if you're a neurosurgeon, you know if you suddenly have a little twitch in your hand that someone could die on the table. If you're a structural engineer, you know that your responsibility is to point out anything that could cause a problem in a building. Um, If you're an actuary, right, if your numbers aren't right, what does that mean? And does a corporation have to restate their earnings? What's the cost of that? You know, if how bad can things go? And, you know, what's your role in that? I mean, that's a really strategic business operational question that we all have to ask ourselves. Yep. And to pull it to pricing, if, if, if you do sort of make these risks visible, take these hidden risks and make them visible, you can price based on that. So you can say in a proposal... You know, like, uh, basically, if you want me to take the risk, it's going to cost this much. If you if you're going to take the risk, it'll be a lot less Mm -hmm. and actually be including the amount of risk that you're taking on, what you're promising, what you're what you're going to deliver, the outcome that you're putting your you're saying, okay, this this is going to be my responsibility. Uh, That should affect your price. You know, the risk Mm -hmm. is one of the things that you're pricing with these sort of higher level strategic engagements. Absolutely. Right. So uh, I'm like, now I'm just thinking of like horror stories. I, <laughs> I feel like I feel like a lot of the reason that, that the risk is invisible is because for, is more likely with folks who are uh, less experienced and they don't really realize how bad things can go. You know, I've seen right. I've seen people get fired, letting a project get out of control. Uh, I've seen um, developers just kind of like get wrapped around the axle with this problem that they just like they won't let it go they won't ask for help they just they just go into the basement and bill like 160 hours across two weeks and come back and expect to be paid and have haven't fixed any they've just made it worse uh developers who insist that the way the customer insist that what the customer wants is wrong and do it their own way anyway and expect to get paid these are these are more employee types of situations, but I've I've also seen other ones where business partners separate and the and split up the clients, and then business partner A gets sued by a client, and business partner B, who's no longer associated with any of it, gets sucked into uh, it's sort of endless endless lawsuit. Yes, that's that, that you want to take care of that one in the sales agreement. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's another place that if, if you uh, want to really read some stories about things gone wrong is public consulting. And by public, I mean it's generally entities that have some kind of a responsibility to air all of their findings, like cities and towns, county government, um, state uh, pension funds. Um, those and when they hire a consultant, that consultant usually has to go, uh, has to, the one that they pick has to go into a public meeting and talk about what they're going to be doing, assuming it's not confidential. Um, and it's surprising amount of these are not confidential. And then later, when the project is done, the consulting firm or person is often raked through the coals with the local citizens who disagree with the outcomes. I mean, it's pretty common. It's why when I was, the big firm that I was with uh, had a basic rule, we, we don't do public consulting. There were one or two exceptions, but it had to literally go all the way up to the CEO to get an okay 
to do those projects because they didn't want the firm's name dragged through the muck. Right. Anything that's public, you know, it's kind of like being on social media. Everybody's got an opinion and they want to share it. <laughs> they sure do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think in, in the software space, oh, I, you know, you just mentioned uh, work that out in the sales agreement. And, and I agree with that in, in, even in the context where you're just engaging with a client for the first time and you're going to, not even at a strategic level, you're going to build something for them. A perfectly valid question in the sales process is how reliable does it need to be? People aren't going to just say, oh, it needs to be 100% reliable. Um, and you say, okay, what's it worth for it to be 100% reliable? What would happen if it was down one day a year? What would happen if it was down uh, one hour a week? Would, would those be expensive problems for you? And they'll tell you. Some people, you know, for certain things, I mean, if my website was down, uh, you know, an hour a week, it wouldn't really affect me that much. I mean, it would be a little embarrassing, but it's not, it's not going to affect that much. But if it's, uh, if Amazon.com is down on Black Friday, that's, <laughs> you know, millions and millions of dollars lost. So the level of reliability is highly variable. You, you can't just assume everyone wants it to be cl as close to 100% reliable as possible because odds of most clients wanting to pay what they would have to pay to get there is pretty low. Mm -hmm. So, you know, asking that question up front and getting into scenarios where, you know, like, well, really, how bad would it be? What level of reliability are, are we looking for here? Uh, what's the range? And then you could price those different things because it, it, would, it would cost way more to build something that's highly reliable versus something that's just slapped together. You could probably do it really quickly and not have to worry about a, a major loss, whatever the, whether it's money or brand reputation or whatever. If you don't have to worry about it, that makes your job as the builder much, much easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just assuming that they, they need maximum reliability and zero technical debt and all of that uh, is is just that it's an assumption so it's so it's worth talking about in the sales interview putting it into the proposal possibly different levels of reliability different levels of uh, quality across the three options and let them pick the one that suits their risk tolerance and budget well I, the other thing i was thinking as you were saying that is that you want to find those three options within your comfort level of the overall deliverable. In other words, if you believe, let's just say as an example, that you believe that it has to be X percent reliable and your client says, ah, I'm not worried about that. You know, you think it needs to be 90%, 50% is fine with me, but you look at yourself and you say, you know what? I don't want to deliver a system that's 50% reliable. That's not what I do. My brand and my business is to do this. So it's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's looking at both, both of those pieces and deciding for you what makes the most sense. Right. Yeah, there's a certain level of work that you don't want to put your name on. <laughs> there's a, there's yeah. a funny story um, about the, they, you know, I'll say recently, it was probably 20 years ago, built a mall in Providence and the parking garage is just the worst. It is the worst. And... I mean, it is just like difficult. It's confusing. It's difficult to navigate. Everything's too small. It's like, what kind of cars do they think people are going to drive in here? <laughs> and it it was so bad. It was sort of, it was designed by someone who I guess was fairly well known. And the the design, the customer, I don't know who the customer was. I guess the developer just kept 
wanting to put more spaces in and and stealing little you know area more space more space and just kept mm. messing with the design and finally the architect took his name off it he said i'm not my name is not going on this piece of garbage and yeah so that's totally valid yeah. you know there there's kinds of work that you just don't want to do so naturally i'm i'm not suggesting that you should compromise your sort of professional ethics to deliver something that's just garbage in your opinion. Uh, so in that case, you just probably wouldn't work with that client because they don't care about the level of quality that you can deliver. That's just a bad fit probably. Well, it's kind of like you're asking yourself that question, how bad can things go? And so the person <laughs> that's really concerned about the reliability, and it might be somebody who's very conservative, the, the, the consultant might be very conservative. And they're mm -hmm. like, I just don't want to take the risk of a 50% reliable system. But no, that just doesn't make sense for me. Somebody else would say, hey, I'm okay if it's 25%, as long as these conditions are present mm -hmm. and we're all very clear. And, you know, and we've, and I don't see either situation as wrong. Correct. I right? agree. It's whatever works for their business. The, the key is from a risk management perspective is to know what it is that you're guaranteeing and to be as certain as you can that your client understands the same thing. Mm. So, so you just reminded me of a story that uh, a couple of stories, in fact, where I've been sort of pushed out of my boundaries by a client or they asked, asked to go outside of my boundaries as a client. A better way to put it is a client asked me to do something and I discovered where my boundaries are. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, right. One client asked me to add an actuals field, a quantity field, in addition to the shipped field. And I was like, well, yeah, why? You're going to ship the actual quantity. He's like, well, people don't always count all the business cards in the box. So, so he's basically shorting people. But he wanted to know. Oh. Yeah, it's just gross. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. Um, I heard another story recently where a consultant was asked to go into a database and change numbers, just change, like change historical numbers. And even in, you know, I there was a news story about that. I think in Florida, the COVID numbers in Florida, like asking the database person to go in and just lie. <laughs> yeah. I think um, the governor of New York did that too. <laughs> might've been. Yeah. I'm not, I've tried to stop following that stuff. There was another one. Oh, uh, storing credit cards in plain text in the database. Oh, it's okay. like, oh, we'll just, just storm in the database. It's like, are you bonkers? Yeah, that no. That feels like a lawsuit. Please. It's it, not only that, it's like easy to not do it. <laughs> There's like so many ways to not do it. And and exposing yourself to all of the, you know, if, if you were going to do that, you would need to set up your physical environment, the physical environment around their servers in a particular way, if you were going to try and be compliant with the actual regulations. So, you know, and just like, no, not doing that. Because eventually if something goes wrong, there's a big leak. My name's going to be in there somewhere. My name's uh -huh. going to be in there somewhere. And they're going to be like, oh, you built this? Well, they told me to. It's like, yeah. Well, I had an experience when I was with the big firm. And this was, you know, quite a long time ago. Um, but there was a consultant who was not a junior consultant. He was senior, but he didn't have a lot of consulting experience. He'd been in organizations and staff roles and then he was brought in on a in a certain capacity I don't want to say too much but um, and he worked on this assignment with a university and he didn't follow the rules 
He didn't go through the quality assurance process, which in those days was nothing goes to a client without having a quality review. If they were numbers, they'd get reviewed by a peer. And then they'd get, once they were peer reviewed, they'd get reviewed by whoever was responsible for that client. In this particular case, this guy did not go through those channels. Mm, Shortcuts. Yeah. And it was not a numbers thing. It was a policy strategic thing. But it impacted numbers that the university wound up, their numbers based on the advice that they took from this guy. The interesting thing was that we were getting ready to let him go. Not because of that. Nobody knew about that. And then uh, guess what? The client came back and said, ha ha. And so there was a lawsuit. It wasn't a big lawsuit, but it was definitely a lawsuit. We couldn't fire the guy because, according to the lawyers, because firing him would indicate guilt. And my response was, well, we are guilty. (laughs) It was wrong. I mean, we need to figure out how you're going to negotiate that, but it was wrong. So what we did is we kept him on the payroll until the issue was resolved. And then he was let go. But again, not for that, because just because he was generally a bad fit. Mm. And that, I mean, the, the advantage for him is that um, because he was in a firm, first of all, he was getting paid. So all the depositions he was doing, he was on payroll. He was getting paid mm-hmm. for those, which he wouldn't if he'd been an independent doing that work. The cost of the settlement of the lawsuit was entirely borne by the organization. Um, I don't remember the details. I know we had, you know, obviously we had insurance. I don't know what the deductible was. I, I don't know what the end result was, but, or I don't remember, it's more likely. Mm-hmm. And, um, but he... He really was okay in the end. He came out okay. He wasn't a bad guy. He just didn't follow the rules because he didn't seem to get this whole idea of being a consultant, which is why he was a bad fit. <laughs> okay. Well, you've raised two, two uh, things there that might be worth teasing out a little bit. Uh, one is the rules or the process that he was shortcutting. And the other one is just a quick mention of insurance, which might not be interesting but just quickly say like there's a thing it is called errors and emissions insurance and it is not expensive and get that um in case you you know for for me it was always like well um the the classic nightmare scenario this never happened to me but the the classic nightmare scenario is uh, making a faulty assumption of that the company has database backups or the database connection information that they gave me is not the production database or something like that. And like that's the, the software developer's nightmare scenario is accidentally deleting the production database and there being no oh, backup. Yeah. And that is like an unrecoverable failure. It's just unrecoverable. People, mm-hmm. Companies go out of business when stuff like that happens. So... Uh, and so, you know, I always had errors and emissions insurance. A lot of clients I worked with required it anyway. They wanted to have you a yeah. million or two in coverage, which only costs about a hundred bucks a month. It's not that big a deal. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's just, you know, a quick way to mitigate risk, um, uh, is just get errors, you know, you know, um, and incorporate if you haven't already. That was the next thing I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. Separate your personal finances from your business finances. So if things do go horribly wrong, let's say your insurance doesn't cover it, you fold the business and you know whatever, go bankrupt, declare whatever, do the thing, but don't. They can't take your house. Like that's yeah. that's the dividing line. It's like that allows me to 
sleep at night back then when I was sort of, you know, working on big, big projects that were, that could have potentially large downsides for the clients. That, that was my net, you know, like I could walk the high wire with confidence knowing that if things, if things went as bad as possible, I wouldn't be in the street. You know, my family wouldn't be in the street. Yeah. We, my husband and I use that as the demarcation line when I'm doing something new. He's like, can we lose the house over that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I started my real estate business, I have two LLCs because you know, when you rent to people, there's liability mm-hmm. with that. And so you just want a system and it looks, may look different for everybody to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And so that's just sort of like kind of business one-on-one, but still it's worth mentioning. I, I know a lot of people are a little bit more in the freelancer scheme of things and their money is all kind of jumbled up together and, and maybe they're not taking high risk projects, but it's something you want to, you want to work out. It's worth the pennies a year that it, it takes to do it. It's, it's really, it's, it's not that much. It's, it's a bad place to look for tiny cost savings. Well, you know, especially in high tax states like California, there is a, it's a flat fee. It's $800 to have a sub S or an LLC. And, and then there's an income related piece on top of that. Um, but a lot of people say, oh, I just don't want to have to do that. And there's filings. This is $25 here, $25 there, plus the 800 plus the income piece. If you're over a certain amount, I'm not sure. I think mm-hmm. it might be $100,000, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I hear people all the time go, oh, no, I don't want to do that. Do yeah. it. I do despise it. paperwork. Despise. I can't make myself look at it, but I did do that because mm-hmm. I was like, that. that's the thing that's going to... I mean, without that, I would just not feel like a grown up, first of all. But second of all, it was like, that's not a risk I'm comfortable taking. There's no, it doesn't matter how small the likelihood is. I, I, I just want to minimize the impact. So like that, those are the two components of risk. It's like likelihood and impact. The likelihood of some of me deleting a fortune 500s production database, extraordinarily small. Don't care. Don't care. Because they could definitely take my house if I hadn't set things up in a way that they they couldn't. You know, they can take the business, they can do all that. That's fine. They can do an insurance claim, fine. But you know, it's one of those things. You do it once, and you you don't really have to think about it. You just like every once a year, my lawyer sends me a letter. It, you know, he it costs me like fifty bucks for the lawyer. You know, for fifteen minutes of time, and they say sign this, send it back. I sign like three pieces of paper, take a picture of it, email it back to them. It's mm-hmm. that's all that's it. And then you'd write a check for for me it's 500 bucks and that's it. And it's great. And you wouldn't I wouldn't never have been able to work with like T-Mobile and Time and Staples and Entertainment Weekly if I didn't ha- you know if I wasn't incorporated and if I wasn't if I didn't have errors and emissions insurance. So if you're looking to swing bigger and get bigger clients, you're going to need that stuff anyway. Well, the word that keeps coming to mind is discipline. And most mm. of us who go into our own businesses, we don't like the word discipline. It like, <laughs> sounds like, Ugh, I don't want discipline. This is why I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> but there's a certain amount of discipline in running a business. And what you just described is exactly that, is, is you discipline yourself to do the core things that are essential to protect yourself in business. Mm-hmm. And once you've set them up, it, especially if, if you do it in a way that's automated, you, you don't have to worry about it. You just have yeah. to do it. I mean, I have to mm-hmm. go online once a year in August, pay a $25 fee, fill out 
a questionnaire, which is yes, 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 or no, 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 and and pay twenty five dollars and it's done. Right. You know, just do it. Yeah. Uh, that that reminds me of, um, you know, the word discipline reminds me to get back to the process thing, and the story you told about the sort of uh, sort of not great consultant but expert who was shortcutting the process. You know, what are your own processes? For quality assurance, you know, are you just sort of a shoot from the hip cowboy coder, you know, for the software people or over time, do you start to be like, wait, this is setting me up for potential failures or even just, just customer dissatisfaction. You know, after a while you start to be like, Hmm, maybe I should come up with a way that I could do this more reliably instead of, you know, feeling like I'm playing whack-a-mole on every software project (laughs) and just let the, let the bugs reveal themselves and then I'll fix them if someone finds them. So instead of that, it's like maybe get a little more proactive, especially if this is a client who's explicitly asked for high reliability and they're paying for it. You know, what are your processes and and do you notice when you're shortcutting them or do you just like, oh, this is different. Um, you know, this is an exception. This is an exception. Are you doing that all the time? Uh, then, you know, it's probably time to to ask yourself, am I exposing myself to a bunch of risk by shortcutting my own process that my my disciplined self from a year or three years ago or whatever, put these kind of guardrails in place. And now I'm always jumping over them. Like, well, that should cause some cognitive dissonance. It's like, why am I jumping over my own rules? And maybe the rules are wrong. So change the rules. Or maybe you're getting lazy. Maybe you're overworked. Maybe you're rushing for some reason. And, and sort of get to the root of that problem because you could be, it could be, maybe not, but it could be that you're exposing yourself to some invisible risks that could be worse than your, you're probably not even imagining anything happening. So like what could happen? How bad could it be? Why did you put those guardrails in the, in the, in place in the first place? Especially if you're a soloist, it's really ridiculous to be saying one thing and doing another. I could see it with employees where they just disagree with the process. They think it's silly or waste time. In, in that case, if people are, I don't imagine there's lots of people with employees here, but then it's it's time for a conversation perhaps with the employees about why the rules are there. Yeah. Well, you've had, you've had tons of employees. Like how did, and I'm sure you had tons of process. So like, did you find that? <laughs> of course I had a process. <laughs> of course. Was there... Was that like a big part of your onboarding or like how, how did you do that for, for folks who do have employees? Yeah, it was, it was part of the onboarding. And I, again, I think it's because I came out of a big firm that had a really rigorous quality control system. Most of what we did with one exception, one practice area was, was fairly numbers oriented, even though it was strategic. So the onboarding was when they got their computer and we'd sit down and go through what the rules are. And so here's an example. So uh, a contractor, not an employee, but a contractor working on something is on a project and the client asked them something. Um, and they, the rule was they have to do it through our email address so that we had a, you know, a running, not that we ever looked at it, but we had the ability to go in and look at those emails. And they had to copy whoever was running the client on it, which was usually me. And so that was the rule. And so they could answer a question and I didn't expect them to, you know, these are all experienced people. I don't expect them to run the answers to everything by somebody else. But the other rule in quotes was if you're not sure, 
touch base with me first, you know, whoever's running the client, and then we'll figure out if we need to get somebody else's opinion before you answer. That was a really kind of a simple thing. Um, the rule about uh, any client deliverables beyond like a simple email, there always had to be a second set of eyes on them and whoever was running the client had to look at them. And the thing was, the reason I say whoever's running the client, I didn't have technical expertise in every area that we consulted in, but I did understand the client and their environment. So I would read it in a different way. But I would ask them to have someone appear of theirs who had expertise in their area to review it as well. And it wasn't a thing where they would go through it and go, you did this wrong, you did that wrong. It was more like, you know, it's really interesting that you've come up with these three solutions. Did you think about this? Mm-hmm. And the other person would say, yeah, but we rejected it for this reason. So it was, that's the kind of dialogue that it would promote. And that's what I wanted. Mm, that's so funny. Like I have a, a parallel story. One of my students hires lots and lots of developers and he hires them in pairs. And mm. they, and one of the, the exercises that he has them go through is, um, what first this two two separate things that he does he's also extremely process oriented and he has um he has this exercise that he has people go through where he says before you solve a problem come up with three ways you could solve it don't just do the first one and and come up you know you're mm-hmm. like force yourself to look at it from three different angles and then pick the one that you think is the most appropriate and uh, also, I don't know if he does this. I don't know if he does that part in the pairs. He might do it. He, he might, that might be part of the pair thing where the, he has the two people talk and brainstorm a bunch of ways to create this feature or whatever, and then together pick the best one. And, uh, and he also has them review each other's code. Yeah. So yeah, it's just amazing how much better you write when you know someone who knows what you're doing is going to look at it. Uh, yeah, it's unbelievable. <laughs> like any, anytime I'd go into an org, there was always, a, you know, for the first time, there was always a moment where the developer or the lead developer or the CTO or somebody would pull me aside and apologize for the state of the code. Always. It was like it was <laughs> it was like three, two, one. Here he comes. And it's like, oh, I just want to, you know. We just kind of like been really rushing, and it's really. I just want you to know that you know we know we know it's not perfect. <laughs> yeah. When you know someone's going to look at your code, you you know you get embarrassed if you if you know you've not been living up to your own standards. Well, so that's a that's a great you know have have a second pair of eyes is knowing that a second pair of eyes will be reviewing your work is a very interesting uh, little kind of safety valve to put in there. Well, and if you're building a firm, I mean, one of the reasons I did that was some of it was I wanted the stuff to be good, not just right. It's more than because a lot of these times in these situations, there isn't one right answer. There are different solutions that have different pros and cons. But what I liked about having that interchange, and sometimes I participated in it and sometimes I didn't, but it allowed more than one person to be involved in every client. And it wasn't just that if something happened to the lead consultant, I had a backup. I really didn't do it for that reason. But I really loved the idea. It was the kind of firm I wanted to create where we had peers excited about the work that we were doing, trying to figure out how to make it great for the client. And when you do that and each person kind of passes it on to the next one, 
it's amazing. Now we could do that in part because we only hired really experienced consultants. And I had a few people who came out of corporate and and they were more natural consultants, but they still had to learn the consulting aspect of it. Those people I watched like a hawk because <laughs> they didn't know what they didn't know yet. Right. But the experienced consultants, I mean, they were they understood. They came from places where there were quality review things, but they were often punitive and this was not punitive right. it was mm. let's do great work together yeah with a goal of like delighting the client yeah yeah, yeah. Right. So and sometimes they, they learn from really interesting things from each other i mean we did some really fun assignments really mm. really cool cool so you know for the subset of listeners who do have employees you know almost surely you've got some processes in place but it could be something that you're letting slide and you know it, or there are certain, you know, cowboy coders or somebody's just shortcutting things, some prima donnas, like, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, I mean, to bring it back to the, the subject, that is invisible risk. So it's like, it's like discover that and, and battle it. And for the soloists, it's just so much, it just makes everything easier if you have a process I've found because I was mm -hmm. very, very fast and loose, like, like special forces mentality, like drop me behind, drop me into a problem and <laughs> I will fix it. But it felt like every time, you know, and I had this, like all of these different skill sets and I would just, I'd be able to fix it and I got good results, but it did always feel to me like a little too improvisational and just from a, from a, an effectiveness, a client by client effectiveness. I, f I always felt like or looking back on it, I feel like I could have maybe done, uh, deliver better outcomes if I had more of a process way back then, you know, and that would expose me to, to less risk. But really, it's just easier. It makes your life easier. It's less to think about. Yeah. If you've got a process, you, you know, and, and if you do have that process, then it gives you or it, it would give me or it does give me much higher confidence that I can deliver a positive outcome because I'm just not, I'm not improvising every time. So it's like, oh, here's this list of things to do. And it's, it's, uh, it's always unique to the client. I mean, the list is always the same, but the client always has, you know, some little unique things, but the, but the big beats, it, it, it rhymes. Like if the clients that you're attracting, uh, are kind of there to have a similar problem solved, then there's going to be a lot of similarities, a lot of repeatability. It makes it easier for you uh, in terms of labor, it makes it more likely that you're going to deliver a home run for them, which is great. And it decreases the risk of, you know, geez, in my case, like customer dissatisfaction is really the biggest, probably the biggest risk now. Mm -hmm. But even back with the, back when I was actually building stuff years ago, it would have been, uh, it would have been great to have more automated testing. It would have been great to have you know, site reliability engineers. It would have been great to have all that stuff. And I never did. Um, sometimes the client did, but yeah, those, those things are, um, it's just something to take into consideration. It's like, it kind of goes back to the beginning where it was like, what's the worst thing that could happen in this situation? How reliable does it need to be? And how much do you want to invest to get that level, get into the range of reliability that you're comfortable with and find out from the client, uh, basically what they're what they desire and then come up with prices assuming that that what they want is in the range of stuff that you'd be willing to provide 
then it's like, all right, well, what are the different prices going to be for the different levels of, mm-hmm. of reliability? Who's going to take the risk? There's another piece I just want to mention here because we talked about, you know, having people review things. Um, also, if, if you're, what you're doing is not so repetitive, but it's more of a strategic thing, is you really want to have a sounding board or two that you can use from time to time when you uncover this unusual client situation and you're just not sure if your approach is quite right, it's really good to have a sounding board. It's, and it's not somebody who's there to kind of dot your numbers or you know, dot your, your programming, but it's to vet your thinking about the situation and sometimes the politics of the situation. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, okay. There's a great angle. It's like I, I find myself reaching out to particular people when I know I'm facing a situation that is a weakness of mine. So like I know I'm really bad at, at X, call it whatever, um, I don't know, interpersonal communication or like, like when, if I have a coaching student that's having like relationship problems with their spouse or something, you know, like something that's way out of my <laughs> That would not be zone. your thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. like, um, it, that's, that's an extreme example, but th- it does come up that people ask me questions about things that I'm like, uh, or I'm faced with a situation. It could be on social media. It could be on my mailing list. It could be one of my Slack rooms where something happens. And I'm like, oh, I know this is this is one of those times when I'm going to put my foot in my mouth for sure. And that's when I reach out to, you know, uh, sounding boards, like you put it, like friends who I trust, who I know are great at this. Just be like, um, you know, like before I press send on whatever the, the answer is mm-hmm. or whatever the response is. I'm like, can you just, is this going to blow up in my face? <laughs> like, am I, is this, is this, am I like underthinking this? And, uh, and I've never once regretted doing that. Yeah. Never once. It's always good. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it might be that you just change a word in what you were going to send or, or a know, lot of times it, delete a delete. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, in my case, it's been deleting paragraphs. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't need that one. You don't need that one. Right. Yeah. yeah, it just helps. I mean, it always helps to have somebody else. But when you think about somebody who's expert in what you're struggling with, it's just it's to have that person on speed dial is mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I guess to wrap up it. You know, probably no one listening to this is building bridges or designing bridges or inspecting them or buildings or any other kind of mechanical stuff. But this, the stakes are still pretty high. You know, they're, they're not yeah. the highest, but there can be lots of money on the line. I, I have plenty of students who deal with big companies, websites and that sort of thing. And, you know, $50,000 a minute when this thing is down. That, that the client mm-hmm. is losing. And they're, you know, if that gets up to a couple million, they're going to start thinking like, hmm. Hmm. <laughs> you know, maybe we should call the lawyer, uh, something like that. So, uh, I think, I guess what we're revising is to kind of take an inventory of, of the engagements that you're on or when you're thinking about a new engagement and trying to make visible any invisible risks that are maybe baked into assumptions or, or w- whatever and making them visible and, uh, articulating explicitly between you and the client like who's responsible for what what promise are you making here and is that promise different at the different price points it probably is or should be yeah and then mitigating whatever you know mitigating the impact of whatever could blow up in your face like so whatever risks yes. you do decide to take 
then, okay, what can I do to decrease the impact if this does go horribly wrong? Yeah, it's you're managing the front and the back end. The front end is with the client and how you structure the engagement and the work you're delivering. And the back end is, you know, E&O insurance um, or how you structure your business, you know, a corporation or an LLC. It's that. It's you want both front and back end. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, hopefully that's not too alarming. It feels like an alarmist episode, but, you know, folks who. It does, but. Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, I remember when I didn't know about this stuff and I found out. Fortunately, I didn't find out the hard way. You know, I found out more from from cautionary tales, so maybe this will be this podcast this episode will be one of those cautionary tales for folks. Yeah. Yeah. No question. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark and I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>